Hello and welcome to the Spooky Shelf Podcast. I am your host, Joe Ducaro. In this podcast, I invite my guests to curate their very own Spooky Shelf, compromising 13 titles that they think is the best the genre has to offer. My guest again today is James Swanton, uh, who you know from Host, Dash Camp and Frankenstein's Creature. More on that one later. This is part two of our conversation. We actually recorded for a very, very long time, so I had to split this one into two. Um, But that doesn't mean it's any less of an entertaining conversation. And James, again, is wonderful and very eloquent, as you'll know from part one. And we've since chatted a little bit after recording, and I I like to think of him as a friend. I hope people will reciprocate that. Uh, Remember to subscribe to the Spooky Shelf podcast so you can keep up to date with more guests from the online horror community. And without further ado, let's continue putting up a spooky shelf with James Swanton. Yeah, I I find the the others an almost overwhelming emotional experience, and it is one of those films that every time I return to it, and I I did return to it a few days ago, I do find myself in tears by the end. Mm. Um, I mean, ghost films, it's hardly revelatory to say that they are a fantastic way of thinking about our mortality and our fragility as human beings and our smallness um, in this chaotic and frightening and impossible to understand universe and and this is what's so remarkable about the others um, so there's this wonderful device in the film whereby the children of the Nicole Kidman character are sensitive to light. If if they're exposed to light, they'll come out in a rash and their throats will close up and they'll die. So this provides a wonderful reason for this house, this old house on the Channel Islands in a secluded area, to be kept in a state of constant darkness, shutters over the windows, curtains drawn... If you open a door, you have to lock it behind you as a servant in order to uh, you know, prevent these children ever being exposed to light. This is a brilliant metaphor for what the film does over its running time, which is to gradually bring everything into the light. Because you discover, as you get to the conclusion of the film, that you know this family is indeed dead as are the servants in the house, who have come to them early on, who know they're dead, and are trying to, you know, inform the the mistress of the house and and her children. And, and they finally succeed at the end, and the, um, the, um, the mother character in this, who's played by Nicole Kidman, I think it may be Nicole Kidman's finest performance, I... I often forget what an incredible, you know, what an incredibly good actress she is, but um, she she has to navigate this journey from being this extremely uptight, orthodox, observant Christian who is teaching her children from the Bible and indoctrinating them with Scripture and telling them there definitely is a hell, there definitely is a limbo. There will be a heaven if you're good enough. Uh, Even punishing the children by having them recite from the Bible. She has to go on this journey across the course of the film from that absolute certainty about the hereafter, about spiritual matters, to at the end finally saying, I have no idea where I am, where we are. I don't know if there's a limbo. I don't know if there's a god. 
And that revelation of smallness is so incredibly moving. I mean, there are loads of other elements in the film which um, make it um, an incredible emotional experience for me. The, the musical score is one of the most beautiful I've ever heard in any film of any kind. I'm about to mangle the name of the director who also wrote the music, but um, I think it's Alejandro Amenabar. Uh, Spanish speakers will not will not thank me for that pronunciation. <laughs> I have no sounded, Spanish, I'm afraid. It sounded but roughly I, right to my sort of A-level Roughly Spanish right. Years. Maybe maybe <laughs> 70% right, I don't know. Alejandro but, um, Amenabar. Let's go with that. <laughs> we'll go with that. We'll go with that. We'll go with that. Um... Yeah, so so that's uh, that's another wonderful feature of this film, and um, yeah, there's there's a scene where um, it's Christopher Eccleston who plays um, Nicole Kidman's husband in this, uh, a pre-Doctor Who Eccleston, and he comes back from the war, and um, you know by the end of the film you fully recognise, oh, he must have died in the war, and that was his spirit briefly returning to the house. He comes out of these um, impenetrable white mists that surround the house throughout the film. Um, except by the end, when uh, all has come out into the light. And there's, there's um, you know, a sense that he, even in death, is trapped in this prison of shell-shock and trauma created by the war. Mm. And... There's just this impenetrable barrier surrounding him, which is, of course, extremely emotionally troubling. And, um, you know, there eventually comes a moment just before he goes back off to war, this this never-ending war that he is a ghost is still embarked on, where he, he, he ends up making love to his wife. And I have to say, it's one of the purest scenes I've ever, I've, I've ever seen in any film of sex as precisely that, as an act of love, as mm. an expression of love. There's, there's nothing kind of sexy about the scene. It's just a scene of absolute emotional need wrought to a conclusion. It's quite, quite remarkable. Another wonderful aspect of the film is uh, Finola Flanagan, who plays a servant. And, you know, if you were to compare this to The Innocence, she's essentially kind of like Mrs. Gross figure in relation to the governess figure that uh, Nicole Kidman resembles. Um, and that is a brilliant, incredibly touching performance. Just this wise, warm, sort of salt-of-the-earth gatekeeper to ushering this bewildered family into this, this knowledge of the fact they're dead and they don't truly know what's going on, but um, you know they 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 will always have this house. They will always have each other. They um, yeah they they can reach a place of peace and maybe even solace in the eye of this overwhelming storm, which is the sheer inexplicability of being a ghost. And that meant to me. That, that idea of just existing forever is it's 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 a nightmare beyond reckoning and the idea that you could be 
locked into an immortality and unable to find any way out of it and to have no idea why you're there and it's 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 a kind of cosmic horror really it's um the horror of the sublime it's contemplating something which is too massive for you to wrap your head around so you can only sort of fall back and wonder at it but um it does give this film a hell of an emotional punch and um it also has to be said that the actors playing the children deliver some of the best performances from children i i i think i've ever seen um it's a brilliant film it's wonderful and i have to say on a personal note and given this is the emotional category that's a that's an important note to strike um it was a great favorite of my grandma's who passed away last year mm. she loved this film and she loved the sixth sense as well and she was really fascinated in general with the idea of ghosts she always said she'd come back as a ghost. She hasn't yet, as far as I'm aware. But, um, you know, fingers crossed she might, because um, <laughs> I'd find it interesting. And, um, yeah, she, she she was fascinated by ideas of this nature. And, um, you know, I, I, I always think of her now in, mm. in conjunction with this film. Um, and as I think we may get on to discussing a bit later, she had a lot to do with my, uh, you know, my, my love of horror cinema. I mean, she, she exposed me indirectly but well i suppose sort of directly to that first image of lon Chaney as the phantom of the opera you know she she was one who brought the leaflet back from florida so yeah 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 there's uh there's a lot going on in the others but, it's a very emotional film no matter which way you slice it well no that's fantastic and you know as as i said previously this this show isn't really about the horror films you pick it's about the stories that the, ah, the guests bring to it so I, I hugely appreciate the the amount of thought and you know a, a, a emotional sort of um what's the word emotional um articulation that you, you've brought to this james i hugely appreciate oh that. thank so, you yeah i i it's 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 just one of those it's just one of those things that just it's always eluded me like it's just one of those yeah, i've not yeah. got around to but again as it's come up now i think three or four <laughs> times on this i probably oh, has should it? get oh, around right. to it <laughs> yeah. no it's it's well worth seeing well worth seeing your uh your eighth pick then james i'm going to ask you for is what was your best experience with a horror film in a cinema? I was highly tempted to pick Malignant. Because <laughs> <laughs> I went into that blind and I had no idea quite how batshit things were going to become. <laughs> and it's bonkers, that, that one, isn't it? That was a cherishable experience. Yeah, I, I went to a tiny cinema in the Lake District when um, I was filming Walking Against the Rain. Uh, I, went, I went with the... Um, two girls who were doing my makeup and one of them had seen it one of them hadn't the one who had seen it you know sort of had us go without telling us what was in store and um god i've, I've seldom enjoyed myself in a cinema more laughing at and with the film in equal measure and um, <laughs> <laughs> marveling at you know how in, you, know, you know the fact it was in such incredibly poor taste the, the the idea of making a film about a tumour, for God's sake. I know. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. But also a tumour that turns you in... into Neo from The Matrix, you know? Well, indeed. <laughs> yeah, God. Ah, launching so many Halloween costumes uh, <laughs> in the process. And, uh, God, yeah, the, the cartoonish 
heights or, or depths, dependent on which way you look at it, that that film either escalated or descended to. It was um, quite, quite extraordinary. And I've not wanted to return to it since, because um, I, ca- I can't see it would ever live up to the uh, first exposure. But um, the, the, the film I have gone for instead is um, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, <laughs> which was released in 1973. It's an excellent title. Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, released in 1973. I didn't see it at that point, because um, I happened not to be born yet. It was a miscalculation <laughs> on my part. But what, what, what I did see was um, a showing of the Restoration in 2013. Now, this was special for all sorts of reasons. Um, it was at the BFI South Bank, and this was my very first journey to the BFI South Bank, and I've been back many and many a time since, and it's it's always felt a special event, because I don't live in London, so it's um, it's always one of the things I scope out when I am down south. You know, what's, what's showing at the BFI? What can I see for the first time, or see for the tenth time, as the case may be? So I've had loads of wonderful experiences there, seeing The Innocents, and The Night of the Hunter, and, you know, a lot of non-horror stuff. It, it may shock you to hear. But um, <laughs> Frankenstein of a Monster from Hell was the first thing I saw that. Already a film I loved. I love Hammer, and I particularly revere the Hammer Frankensteins, and it's the final Hammer Frankenstein, and um, a very underrated entry in the series, a very strong, full-blooded gothic, and um, a good note for the series to go out on. Um, It was the 100th anniversary of Peter Cushing's birth, so this screening was partly to time with that. And to that end, they had quite a lot of special guests at the screening. So it was introduced by Jonathan Rigby, who'd um, has come up several times on this chat and who had <laughs> written the foreword to a, a new edition of Peter Cushing's memoirs. And you had two actors from the film there, Madeline Smith and Dave Prowse, who of course a few years after Frankenstein and Monster from Hell went on to be Darth Vader. And uh, you also had Peter Cushing's secretary there, Joyce Sproutton. So um, it was the wonderful experience of seeing the film, knowing that, you know, these people who were, you know, enmeshed with the film, in the film, were, um, you know, they're sharing the same air as you in the auditorium for a spell. Mm. And on top of all of that, the communal experience. Because liking films of a slightly antiquarian bent as I do, so many of my adventures in film watching have been quite solitary so to be in an, you know simply enormous space with hundreds of other people enjoying the film as I was that, that, that was a very special experience for me and and I, I knew from the off it was going to be a good experience you know all of the laughs were landing and um, the audience was up for everything you know, there's a lot of um, comic business with grave robbers dropping things and getting in trouble with the authorities classic hammer material to begin with and um yeah the audience was really going for it and uh, that was so so heartening mm. yeah to, to find people as sort of of your tribe as it were yes yes yeah because um, I, I completely uh, sympathize with that like growing up like finding you know a horror is this thing that suddenly occupies quite a large portion of your brain but then to sit in a cinema yeah, yeah. with people who feel similarly it's also 
that sort of feeling really plays against my fear of going to... I, I have this weird thing about going to the cinema now, James, oh, right. which is that it's my favourite place to be on the planet, Yeah, but it takes a single second of someone checking their phone and the whole thing's ruined. <laughs> I, I, I get yeah. right. so angry. So, But amongst my tribe, which, you know, the horror lot, that happens far less frequently. So I just, I do really appreciate that that's the thing that's, you know, you yeah. know, and I have well, been known to shout at people yeah, for, like, yeah. answering. Well, I, I, mean, I mean, interestingly, on this uh, on this note, um, I, I, I went back to the BFI later that same year, 2013, for The Innocents. Hmm. I, I was appearing on stage at the time with my great friend George Fouracres in um, a play called Scrooge and Marley, which was a two-man version of A Christmas Carol. Of course, I was playing Jacob Marley, the, uh, <laughs> the uh, terrifying ghost. Um, now, we'd done a lot of advanced research when we were putting that together. You know, we, we'd gone to a genuine haunted house in York, for example, and um, one, one of the things we'd really enjoyed, and which had slightly traumatised but also fascinated George, was watching The Innocents. So, so when we saw midway through the run of this play that it was on at the BFI, we were like, we have to go, we have to. to go, we have to see it. And um, that, that was fascinating because I don't even remember what the disturbance was, but there, there, there was some contingent of the audience that was laughing at the film or not taking it seriously or talking to each other. There was some disturbance. Mm. And I don't quite remember the details, but clearly someone... In a, in a fit of almighty righteous peak, screamed or shouted at them. <laughs> and it lasted mere seconds, but they shut up and didn't say anything for the rest of the film. It's worth doing. I no idea who this person was, but it was scarier than the film. <laughs> this cataract of enraged, incensed noise issued forth, but only only very, very briefly. It, it, very it, strange. It's quite a... An, in, an adrenaline inducing moment when you realise oh, I'm about to do that, you know, but yeah, I, yeah. I've I completely, I've got absolutely zero problem with just shouting at people now, just for like get off your phone, come on, stop talking, shut up yeah, behave well, yourself T- sounds like you're shirting. using your your wrathful powers for good yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, so yeah. when judged, I will say, well I was acting in the interest of the film and the rest of the audience, so... <laughs> <laughs> a holy war. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, yeah, so uh, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. I don't know if I've seen any of the Frankenstein Hammer movies. I have the... There was a, oh. a big box set of Hammer movies that came out a few years ago. Yes. I've got yeah. that, and I am sort of portioning, rationing them out over my lifespan. Yeah. You know. The the <laughs> annoying thing, I, I'm I'm guessing you'll have the Studio Canal Hammer box set. I think so. Um, yeah, it's the one that's got the probably. largest collection because there's a. Few. It's got the sort of red cross on a black background. Yeah, a that's cover, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the annoying thing with Hammer films is because Hammer <laughs> Hammer's Hammer's product was distributed by so many different studios. The rights are all over the place for these yeah. days. I mean, what any Hammer fan wouldn't give to have a box set of all of the Draculas or all of the Frankenstein films, but um, they've all been divvied out and, you know, partitioned in such a way where um, it can be quite hard to see them all. Um, You you definitely have Frankenstein created woman on that box set, 
I think so. Which yeah. is very good, but I think is the fourth entry in the series, so it's so it's a slightly odd place to start. Mm. Although the wonderful thing with Hammer Frankenstein's is they all work as standalones. Oh God, I think I think you also have Horror of Frankenstein on that set, which was Hammer's attempt to reboot the series and also featured Dave Prowse. But it doesn't feature Peter Cushing and is, I think, the worst gothic Hammer ever did. It's, um, <laughs> it's fighting lust for a vampire and scowls of Dracula for the bottom position. Um, so, so try and avoid that one until you've seen some of the Peter Cushing starring ones. Um, they're all, apart from the evil of Frankenstein, really, really good. And I would say Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed could be Hammer's greatest film, period. That would be quite a good question, actually, to add to the spooky shelf ones, wouldn't it? What's the best oh, really? Hammer horror movie, surely? Ah, <laughs> uh, well. <laughs> out, of, out of the ones you've seen, do you have a favourite? I mean, I mean, possibly I'm, you haven't seen many. Well, I, I've, I've seen a few. I'm kind of a yeah. bit of a philistine with it, but I think I've got a real soft spot for Dracula, Prince of Darkness, which I know, oh, yes. I know yeah. it's, you know, he crucially doesn't say a word in that, but... No, no, no. It that's was, that's why it works. <laughs> as as I was discovering horror, it was on film four, uh, like something like one o'clock in the morning. So it was just as I was realizing yeah, yeah. this was the thing I was into, and it had the word yeah. Dracula in it. So I hit record and mm. loved it. Um, but also, obviously, the Devil Rides Out is oh, sensational. Yeah. Yeah. So the Devil Rides Out is forever in my top five. Um, mm. I think I think the running order would go something like. Frankenstein must be destroyed. The Brides of Dracula, the Devil Rides Out. Maybe stick the Plague of the Zombies in. Probably stick the original Hammer Dracula in. You know, I mean, I could, I could chop and change forever, but... Um, this is it. That, and that's the nature of yeah, great in lists, yeah. isn't it? It's just on any other given indeed, day, it indeed. could be completely different. So. Which is why I've committed to doing this <laughs> podcast every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm up for it, James. No bother. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, so many lists <laughs> let's go for your uh, ninth disc that I'm going to ask you for then James what's the most underrated horror film yeah this this came to me fairly quickly um, it's interesting you say that because not everybody does everybody says this is the one I struggle with most so I'm pleased it was quite easy mm. no no I, I, I nearly went to Hangover Square which is a film I mentioned earlier yeah. but um, I'm not sure that's underrated exactly it's just the fact that it's been around since 1945 so of course many people today aren't that familiar with it um <laughs> it's highly it's highly regarded by those in the know but um the, the film that always comes back to me for this question is cube from 1997 this is the, the canadian horror yes yeah not and the uh <laughs> oh <laughs> not the philip schofield the... itv vehicle <laughs> no no. Schofield can stay well away from this one. And if I was trapped in a cube with Schofield... <laughs> I, only one of you's walking think, out, James, and I'm back in the demon I, from host. I don't know. <laughs> I think for me personally it would be a horror beyond reckoning. Uh, <laughs> no, this is the safer, nicer version of Cube made in Canada in 1997. And um, it's... A film I think I first saw on TV about ten years ago, and quite unprecedented in my experience. In my, I, I I started watching it knowing nothing about it, and was really just 
so absorbed in it and so hooked into it because for all of the film's shortcomings although I think it's a far better film than people often give it credit for people sometimes have a go at the acting and I think the acting is actually by and large extremely good Um, and people will attack the budget limitations and I mean to be honest that's the genius of this film it makes a complete virtue out of budget limitations Um, people do have a go at Cube but the thing that makes it so compelling is the core idea. It's one of the most unbelievably frightening but fascinating premises for a film I, th- uh, I think I've ever encountered. I'm going to have to talk about this premise now, aren't I? <laughs> I I've, right, in fairness, James, it's, I've started Cube. I have seen a right, okay, bit of okay. Cube. <laughs> How... How how much of Cube is a bit of Cube? Because I really don't want to spoil things as it goes ahead. Uh, maybe like <laughs> twenty minutes. I think I've seen uh, the first twenty minutes. Maybe yeah, not the last like, twenty they, minutes. They, uh, I, I remember them climbing up the first room, and yeah. then it's just it's all black. I can't remember. Yeah. What, I think I was interrupted for some reason because I was enjoying it. Um, okay, okay. Um, so you've seen the wonderful opening. The uh, pre-credits thing with the um... yes, no. Okay. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not firing off. I don't my to mind. ruin anything. <laughs> no. Okay. Oh, well, there's, I mean, there's a wonderful... we, can, we can skate over there if you don't want to. If, no, no, if no, you just no, want to no, say, no. Right, just don't watch. A... <laughs> <laughs> well, you should, and you must, and you will. But um, there's there's a wonderful thing just before the credits where. Um, they, they, they lay out in miniature, essentially, what the film's going to be about. You have a man walking, you know, through this cube, navigating his way through this cube. He um, goes into another room, he starts to cross it, and then he stops. You see lines of blood appear across his Yes! Body. Yes, I and remember he, now. He himself, quite poetically, falls into a series of smaller cubes. And then a metal grating swings back, and you realise he's just been diced in mere milliseconds. Yes, yes, I do um, remember now. It, um, yeah, it really does sum up where we're going with that film. There's always the risk of complete bodily obliteration. Um, but that, to be honest, is far preferable to the predicament that the characters of the film find themselves in. So, so the basic setup of the film, all you need to know is that some people wake up inside a series of interlocking cuboid rooms. They don't know how they got there. They don't know each other. There is no explanation handed to them as to why they're there. They have no idea of the governing intelligence behind this, if indeed there is a governing intelligence. And the film essentially follows their attempt to try and find a way out. And many of these rooms are booby-trapped and packed with inventive torture devices, as, as we've seen in that opening. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting an idea, and I don't want to spoil how it develops that idea, but um, you, you, you begin with that very sort of visceral body horror. That, that, I, mean, I mean, it's almost torture porn. Um, the idea of being in a confined space with the risk of bodily mutilation or obliteration or death. Death is the kind of thing. And death would be the kind of thing in this universe. 
because the film starts to go off into much more cosmic territory. Mm. I had a feeling it was it was heading that way when, yeah, I, when I saw it. Yeah, yeah. So. But it but it does it so deftly in that it's more the slow creeping realization of the implications of what being in this cube are. Um, yeah, I've set you quite a difficult task with talking about this without giving anything away. It's, it's hard, it's hard, but there are there are a number of there are maybe three or four moments in this film where a character will realise something about the nature of the cube, and it's all over body chills. It's so wonderful, and it 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 it, it does it all without going for spectacle. I mean. I suspect because of the budgetary limitations, the mm. filmmakers couldn't have gone the spectacle if they'd wanted. Um, it just sets off fire in the imagination. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it's a little similar to the others in, in opening out onto that sublime or cosmic terror. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I, I really don't want to spoil it. So, so I'm, I'm not going to say any more. But um, I, I hope you feel as I felt when you get to those moments of uh, terrifying realization. What I will do, James, is I will watch it and I will report back, and hopefully Please it will do. be in Please the do. in the affirmative. Actually, yeah, yes, Jesus Christ. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, there, there there are two sequels to Cube, and I believe it had a reboot as well. Uh, I think made in Japan few years ago um you'd hope they'd get to three wouldn't you so they could just call it cubed <laughs> I, I i haven't seen the third in the series i have a funny feeling they may have tried that oh, done something similar. i don't know i don't know someone but, someone um, needs to give me a job in <laughs> come on that was genius <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um i did see the second and it undoes so much of the good work done by the first in that it starts to explain what's going on um, the beauty of Cube is it's very similar to a film I did a few years ago called Broadcast Signal Intrusion in that the core terror in it is there isn't a conspiracy, there's only chaos mm. there's no one there's, there's perhaps, I mean we don't know for sure either way but um, certainly I watch Cube and it inspires me with a thought that oh Oh, perhaps no one's in charge, and everything's chaos. And mm. you you then start to realise quite how comforting it is to believe in conspiracy and believe in conspiracy theories. I think mm. it's the central reason it's become such a massive staple of the public consciousness in recent years, because we've gone through such unsettling times. It's 100%. it's far more comforting to believe Big Brother is watching, and as yeah, a character says and, and in this film, they're doing yeah. Yeah, as a character says in Cube at one point, and I hope I'm not giving too much away by saying this, Big Brother is not watching. <laughs> I, I it's you've you've repeaked my interest in it, James. So I will hunt. Well, that's enough. That's enough. Out. I shall I shall back away now. But, uh, Excellent. That was expertly yes, I, done, might I say as well. <laughs> tiptoeing around <laughs> what I perhaps could have talked about. Fantastic stuff. Um, your tenth disc that I'm going to ask you for then. Uh, what was the last film you watched that scared you? 
Well, I rewatched it and it scared me all over again. Yes. Lake Mungo. <laughs> which I know has come up on your podcast before, but I don't think anyone else has selected it in this category. So I you, felt it was all right for me to select it. You're absolutely right. It was it was danced about, I believe, with Brad Hansen's episode, but we never actually ah. got into a proper discussion of it. So I'm yes, yeah. very, very happy to have the opportunity right now. So tell me about your relationship with Lake Mungo then, James. I think I first saw this two years ago because Gemma, Rob and Jed, basically all of the creative team behind host, treated this film as holy gospel, you know, all, all, all in absolute reference for this film. So um, I, I, I have to say I didn't feel particularly inspired by it. I, 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 don't, I don't mean the title did it any favours in my head. I was like, well, late, late Mungo? What's, what's all that about? Is it going to be, you know, sort of horror film like Lake Placid is there going to be an alligator you know, is it going to be set in a forest you know it's like it didn't to me say ghost but um, yeah I, I, I finally got around to watching it and I'm so glad I did but fucking hell <laughs> it, it took me right back to when I was much much younger and I saw The Ring for the first time and that feeling late on a night when you pull yourself away from the screen and you're sort of strategically manoeuvring away, manoeuvring your way around where you live, so you don't have your back exposed. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And that fit, if you if you cross uh, sort of adjacent to a doorway that's that's dark, you just dart across it yeah, to get yeah. past it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, if you're going upstairs into darkness, you have to close your eyes and sort mm-hmm. of feel your way through because if you open your eyes, you may see something. Um, I've, I've even found if you're going to the toilet, you kind of want to angle your body so you at least have your left or your right hand side facing the wall that the toilet is stuck to, so, so I mean, you're that, not as uh, open to attack. It's just thing after thing. It's, it's, it's a just, privilege um, that the you know the, cha- <laughs> the chaps tend to get, isn't it? It's not quite so much. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's um, yeah, it's like the. Um, it's the mature elaboration of the child hiding under the bed covers, isn't it? Mm. You know yeah. the um, strategies you evolve to deal with that primal, niggling, feral animal terror that's sparked in your brain by certain stimuli, just like mm. this film. Um, really scary, really, really frightening. Yeah. Partly really frightening because it's so emotionally devastating. Mm-hmm. Like the others, it deals with the. Well, like the others, and also a bit like Cube, it, it takes you into existential horror territory, where you wonder at the goodness of a god, if there is a god, who could create a situation where human souls are in such a state of suspension and we assume torment. But I, th- I think what films of this existential nature really do is they suggest, no, there's no God, there's no Big Brother, there's no ruling force, there's no meaning to this. But by God, if you fall into the wrong set of traps, you are going to be experiencing a kind of living hell for an mm. eternity. Um, which I suppose is as big a fantasy as God. Um... The, the idea of anything being eternal, but, um, well, or as big a potential fantasy as God, I'm, I'm, I'm not decided on that either way. But, um, yeah, Lake, Lake Mungo is 
rather, rather wonderful. And it, it, it also took me right back to when I was a child and I used to seek out ghost photos. And then in the early days of the internet, ghost videos. Mm. And certainly the footage you have of the ghost in Lake Mungo, it has such a charge. It feels so true yeah. to those early, well, early life for me, documents I would encounter of what a ghost might look like. Yeah, it kind of has the um, texture of ghosts in that grainy video footage where you're straining to make things out and sort of pulling back at the same time, not quite wanting to see, but but looking far into that mist, into that grain, into that white noise, searching for these uh, humanoid figures. And I think something that it it does expertly is <sighs> I feel like it's a film where cause I've, I, I have only seen it the once but I feel like in the same way that I've become obsessed with um, The Prestige oh, right. I really feel a like a film I haven't seen I have to say well th- here's my this is my reciprocating your many many gifts to me is, <laughs> James you have to see The Prestige you it's about magicians to. isn't it Yes, and so Isn't much it? more. Okay. okay. No, no, my, my, my grand-up was a magician, so I, I, I feel I have to uh, oh, see it for that reason. I, th- I think he saw it, actually, and uh, probably enjoyed it. I, I would um, hope so, because it, it's it's yeah. a film that is about obsession itself, but then I've right, become right. obsessed about it, because there's <laughs> there's certain elements to the story where when you then go back and watch it's almost like yes. a refocusing of the lens and you can ah, read right. every single scene in a thousand different ways but based on the knowledge of where the story ends up so you well, absolutely have to go and see the prestige well, well that's wonderful I, I i can tell you that you will love the others <laughs> perspective i do enjoy it, it, that's that's what it I gains would, yeah. so much from uh, repeat from knowing what's then. coming Yes, um, I have to say, when I first saw the others, I did know what was coming, so uh, mm. it didn't dent my enjoyment too much. But yeah, with Lake Mungo, um, I, yeah, yeah, I, I, I saw it for the second time a few nights ago, and um, it was just as frightening as the first time, even knowing basically what was mm. to come. It's, and, and, it's... yeah. Sorry, carry on. No, no, no. Go on, go on. <laughs> um. I think there's there's several stories hidden behind the main story. I feel yeah, like. yeah. I feel like you almost have to play a detective in a way, as deciding which mm. elements of the story really happened, yeah. how much certain actions that certain characters take discredit other parts of it. But then also, there's almost this third story behind those other two of what actually yeah. has happened in yes, this house yeah. and to this. It's 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 an incredible. Incredible yeah. piece of work. It's multi-dimensional, isn't it? Mm. Um, I suppose you could relate it to things like the turn of the screw of the idea of unreliable narrators, mm. and that's a very on the nose feature of this film because you know, of course, you discover the brother has been hoaxing videos. You know, that's yeah. that's something we're drawn into initially, but the way this mockumentary plays out, you know, we're fully enlightened to that. It's not being kept from us. Um, yeah, I mean. It reminded me of The Sixth Sense a bit this time as well, in that one of the most horrific moments in it is one of the most human. In in The Sixth Sense, especially when I was younger, I was always really upset by the 
again, it's found footage, I suppose, in a way. The um, scene where the video is played, where you discover the mother has been poisoning her daughter, keeping mm. her sick. It's uh, part of um, that, I think it's Munchausen by proxy syndrome, it's called. Um, a real-life complaint, um, or complex. Um, and Lake Mungo as a counterpart, when you discover the horrifying things that the neighbours have been getting up to with the daughter. Yeah. And you see a little of that footage, and again it feels horrif- horrifyingly authentic. And, um, yeah, I mean, God, I have to say as well, watching again, that is one of the most spine-chilling moments for me, when that footage you've seen multiple times before of the brother crossing the hall. Yes. And that's scary yeah. in itself. When you zoom in on a corner of that image and you see the head of the neighbour mm-hmm. who's, who's sort of crouched down in her bedroom and he's oh. barely moving at all. But that I image mean, was there all along. And, oh, God, yeah. I awful. legit just and then, and then, of course, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, of course, by the end of the film, you have that masterful ending sequence where you're seeing again images you've been previously shown and you're finding even more in them than mm. you were aware of before. Um, it's something the film taps into so beautifully, this this, this idea that um, you feel you have sort of solved it. You feel you've gotten acquainted with the evidence and then it's turned around or exposed to a different light or, you know, a new, a new detail comes to your eye and um, reality is redefined all over again. Yeah. It's it's um, it is incredible. Yeah. It's an incredible piece of work. I I, it, yeah. I almost I almost can't believe it exists. Like it's that good, you know. Yes, yeah, and and that's buried, you know, as yeah. as compared to how well known it should be. But isn't isn't that a perfect sort of continuation of the metaphor of the film? Yeah. You know, the same way she has sealed her phone and. I think a bracelet in that plastic bag and buried it at Lake Mungo. This, that that sort of represents the fate of the film. Mm. You know, we've we've dug it out, but we, um, you know, it's it's never going to come fully into the light. It's become a kind of ghost itself. Yeah. And actually, speaking of my my idea of jump scares as being all about the revelation of a terrifying face, this is one of the most brilliant expositions of that towards it- the end. It really and is. It, it really it's, catches you off guard. Well, it, well, it, it, it's it's kind of amazing in the way that that mystery of the wax museum scare is in that it's a jump scare by stealth. Yes, you don't you don't really have too much of a musical sting. You have a kind of there's there's, a, there's something on the soundtrack, but it's almost like a kind of volcanic charge or a kind of electricity. You don't have like a big bang. You know when when the face appears. Um, although again, after you've finished being paused on the image, I think you get a kind of jostling on the soundtrack as the camera moves away again, and that provides a kind of secondary jump scare. Mm. But it's it's a scare that just provides a cold chill, which is you know the very essence of Lake Mungo. Really, variations <laughs> on that. Uh, cold chill informed the entire runtime and and again the face isn't really a surprise is it because as in mystery of the wax museum you've seen it before mm. but it's the putting of two and two together and realizing oh it's that face i'm very pleased we're finding these links between your picks there james that's it's very yeah, satisfying 
I'm I'm coming up with all this on the fly, so I'm I'm, I'm, very, I'm, I'm very impressed with myself. But um, it's it's the joining of the dots together, isn't it? And um, mm. you know we've been able to see that face in the frame anyway. Uh, it's just been in low definition, as filmed through a mobile phone of the early two thousands, and coming towards us slowly. And again, that's another wonderful thing about that scare. Is she running towards the ghost, or is the ghost? moving towards her. And isn't that a wonderful... Oh, this is how dense and packed with richness is Lake Mungo. Isn't that, again, a wonderful sort of elaboration on the theme of trying to run away from death, but death is waiting for you? Are you running towards it, or is it coming towards you? Um, because there's a, there's there's that old story, an appointment in Samara, which is actually a thing that Boris Karloff tells in one of his final films, Targets, there's a sustained take where he relates this ghost story. But it's a very simple ghost story in essence. So a wealthy um, merchant servant is in the marketplace in Samara. And he comes back to his master and he's full of terror and says, I must have a horse, I must have a horse. And the master is like, why? Why must you have a horse? And um, the servant says, oh, master, master, I was in the marketplace and I was jostled by a woman. And I turned round and I saw that it was death. You must let me flee. You must let me flee to Samara. So the master, you know, gives his horse to the servant, and the servant goes off to Samara. And later that day, the um, the master is in the marketplace himself, and he sees death. And he goes over to death, and he says, um, "I hear you. I hear you jostled my servant today. He's very frightened." And death says. Well, I didn't. I didn't mean to jostle your servant at all. I was absolutely shocked to see him there, because I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. <laughs> That's what Lake Mungo is doing. It's an appointment in Samara updated, mm. and it's fantastic. You cannot outrun your destiny. It's a line early on in Nosferatu: "Do not hurry, young man. No man can outrun his destiny." It's um, yeah. So so much of horror cinema is a kind of preparation for death or an adjustment to the idea of death. And mm. um, I think Lake Mungo is one of the purest versions of that I know. I think it's a masterpiece. I, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. It's, it's stunning. Absolutely stunning. But also, mm. like, there's... I, I think I have mentioned this before. There's one of the slightly strange images that sticks in my head about Lake oh, yeah. Mungo is I, I can't really put my finger on why this is but there's a it's quite early on in the film I think yeah um, but it's the fact that they, they they're talking about what happened and mm. they're talking about how they got back from the lake but their jeep like had some sort of malfunction so they had to drive oh, back in yes. reverse yes yeah I don't isn't know that why wonderful? that's terrifying I don't no, know it why is. That's it is. Scary, it is. But no, it's it's feeding into the metaphor all over again. Um, no, that really stuck out at me watching it a second time. Mm. Um, yeah, traveling in reverse. It's, 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 it's something in that which it's a kind of denial, isn't it? Mm. You know, they're not turning their back on where they've just been, they're, but they're, they're still away getting away from so, it. Mm. Oh, I, I had a very clever thought about it when I was watching it, but it's sort of eluding me now. But I, it, it did strike me that that was a particularly fiendishly clever addition to the 
overarching themes of this film. Mm. Yeah, it's it's really unsettling, as you say, on a kind of you know that that slightly unknowable level where you don't want to pick it apart, but. God, it's fun to pick apart, <laughs> oh, isn't it? I mean, well, look at us for the past yeah. ten minutes, just having done that. Well, indeed, it's, it's, indeed, <laughs> yeah. incredible. Yep, Lake Mungo yeah. is a, a welcome addition to your, your very own spooky shelf. Yeah. Traveling in reverse. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, uh, let's move on to your eleventh disc, Ben. What's the best death or kill you've ever seen in a horror movie? I nearly went for Island of Lost Souls. Oh, Charles Lawton. Oh yes, it's uh, from 1932. It's a film version of The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. And it ends with Charles Orton's Dr. Moreau being subject to the vivisection. He has performed on animals to turn them into men. They all round on him with these tiny metal scalpels. And this being a film of the early 1930s, you don't see anything. The camera pulls away, but you hear Charles Orton screaming. And he's able to make that scream sound like hysterical laughter teetering on orgasm. It's one of the most horrifying sounds I've ever heard in a film. It's brilliant. <laughs> um, but I haven't gone for that, because you can't actually see anything. I, I, I wanted, as I mentioned earlier, in conjunction with Cube, I, I kind of wanted something of absolute physical obliteration. And this is that. This is Christopher Lee's Dracula dying in the original Hammer Dracula, 1958. Oh, it's, it's so lovely, isn't it? It's just so... I don't know oh, why. I just find it so nothing adorable. Wrong. How There's nothing earnestly... wrong with this death. <laughs> <laughs> just how earnestly Peter Cushing runs and dives at the curtains. I don't know what it is about it. It makes me laugh every yes, time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you know, the story goes a lot of this was improvised on set. Um... Peter Cushing loved swashbucklers and, um, you know, certainly as a boy he was in love with sort of boy's own adventure stories and westerns and, you know, would be throwing himself out of trees and over fences as a child, just sort of rehearsing things he'd seen in, you know, Tom Mix westerns and all the rest of it. But, um, yeah, so there's, there's always a swashbuckling element to Peter Cushing as Van Helsing anyway, especially in the immediate sequel to this film, The Brides of Dracula. And, um... Yeah, it's it's pitting Peter Cushing's physicality against Christopher Lee. They're both incredibly dynamic physical actors. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. There's 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 a lot here. <laughs> <laughs> but then, like um, the the withering away of Dracula's body, it's really well done. For, given that this is what 1958, it's done really well. It's magnificently done. I, I so distinctly remember first seeing it as well, probably how you first saw it, which is at the start of Dracula, Prince of Darkness. A hundred percent, yeah. My wonderful grandma had recorded it off the telly, because this was still a point where the original Hammer Dracula never seemed to be on telly that much. I don't really know what was going on in the early 2000s. But um, Dracula, Prince of Darkness did get a fair few showings, and... Um, yeah, the standout moment of Dracula, Prince of Darkness, for me, as brilliant as I think that film is, was the beginning and seeing the destruction of Dracula from the original. And I, I still remember feeling a real physical revulsion of at um, the shot where you see Dracula's hand first 
disintegrating and it has this kind of waxy quality mm. to it as the skin peels away i really wasn't ready for that um <laughs> it kind of it kind of reminds me in it's um you know gruesome practical way of um the um death of the villain at the end of indiana jones and the last crusade it's that sort of yeah. you know no holds barred skin sort of turning into sort of clay-like residue turning into bone turning into dust um because because it has to be said that prior destructions of dracula in film had all been rather more genteel um if you go back to the original nosferatu he he fades away in the sun in a fashion that seems to me symbolic almost it's it's like some kind of religious rite being performed and then Lugosi's Dracula is killed off screen. And mm. if if you saw a censored print, you only heard the state being hammered. You didn't even hear Dracula groan. Um, I mean, you do have Dracula being destroyed by sunlight in some of the Universal Dracula sequels. In um, Son of Dracula and House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. But, um, again, it feels rather respectable, rather sort of elegant and restrained. In that Dracula transforms into a sort of laboratory clean perfectly white skeleton in a lap dissolve Um, whereas what you have in Dracula is the real thing it's dirty, it's grubby it's messy, it's very upsetting (laughs) and um, completely physically unsparing yeah I've I've rewatched it earlier today just to remind Mm. myself of how much fun it is it really yeah swashbuckling is absolutely the word for it for what peter cushing's up yes slightly weird like the candlesticks into the cross because you think if it's just any two objects making that oh yeah well i mean you can do that with anything yes yeah it Um, doesn't matter it doesn't matter does it james (laughs) no peter cushing actually um again brought that bit of business into the film it isn't in the uh, screenplay by jimmy sangster um, Peter Cushing was remembering a scene in, I may get this wrong because I've not seen the film but I think it's a film called Barclay Square from the 30s um, it's either called Barclay Square or something very similar to that, where a character banishes an evil presence a ghost or something by doing just that with candlesticks forming a cross, and Peter Cushing a film fan in his youth remembered that and 20 odd years later brought it into Dracula so I think that's wonderful it's um, Mm. Peter Cushing as a film fan injecting a reference into the scene which we as film fans have been enjoying ever since Um, Christopher Lee's acting as well is just unbelievable Mm. fantastically good in, um, in Dracula throughout but particularly in Miss Destruction in that you do feel a bit sorry for him. Yeah, it's, and he's it's lost... strange how he manages to get that out of you. Isn't mm-hmm. it? He's lost all of that dignity and all of that imperiousness and that formidable edge he's had previously in the film, and he's, you know, he's become this, uh, yeah, very very pathetic figure. And um, even more so, it has to be said, since ten years ago they they restored the ending, the um, legendary. Uh, What's what's come to be known as the Japanese f- footage, the Japanese version of Dracula was um, 
you know, it, it was finally discovered in a vault. It had um, only been rumoured to exist, and we had still photographs of things that definitely weren't in the disintegration, like Christopher Lee clawing at his face and pulling makeup off it. Um, mm. As as we do have in the film with the hand, that horrible waxy hand that revolted me as a child. Um, yeah, miraculously, the footage was tracked down. Most of the print of Dracula in question was on the point of complete disintegration. <laughs> How appropriate that they were retrieving yeah. miraculous disintegration <laughs> from it. But miraculously, the um, final few reels were just intact enough for them to make clean copies and then mount a restoration. So you do have extra shots, but interestingly, one shot which wasn't put in the restoration, but is on the rather fancy Lionsgate Blu-ray of the Hammer Dracula from about ten years ago. I don't know why it's not in the restoration, but it's a crying shame, quite literally, because it's a shot where Christopher Lee as Dracula does actually appear to be weeping. He's in such pain and such frustration and is so overwhelmed that the tears, probably created by the very uncomfortable contact lenses, but coupled with Christopher Lee's performance registering so powerfully, the tears are just starting to fall down the cheeks. And, oh, amazing. Amazing. That's, that's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I'm going to have to ask you, James, I mean, like, we, we've mentioned, you know, various Dracula incarnations, you know, with, um, you know, the Max Shrek and Bela Lugosi and Christopher Lee, obviously. <clears throat> Are there any other Draculas that stand out to you? Because it was a few years ago when the BBC, it was Mark Gatiss did a version of Dracula with Clay oh, yeah. Bang, and I thought he mm. was phenomenal as Dracula. I, I, really, I really enjoyed him um, in that. Yeah, I mean, probably the sexiest I've ever found Dracula was that version. Because um, it was funny as well. Uh, and very, very charismatic. Um, whether mm. he's the actual Dracula to me... I, I'm 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 not so sure of that. This is a long-running debate among film fans. Um, I think possibly sparked by the Universal Horror sequel, Son of Dracula, where people still haven't really ever been able to decide whether it's the actual Count Dracula or his son. Mm. I think I think a lot of that is predicated on people just not wanting to accept Lon Chaney Jr. as actually playing Count Dracula. They have to put up a wall of distance somehow. Um, it's. I mean, that's very much how I feel with Gary Oldman as Dracula, because as brilliant an actor as Gary Oldman is, the um, that film gets it fundamentally wrong by trying to make Dracula into a romantic figure. Hmm. Dracula is pretty much the only classic monster who should not be a romantic figure. That's why Dracula works so brilliantly. All of the other monsters, the Mummy, the Phantom of the Opera, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Frankenstein monster, the Gill Man, even the Invisible Man, they all have a romantic yearning. They all they all have a sort of loving impulse. Mm. The brilliance of Dracula is he kind of brings with him the sort of outward show of romance or love or seduction. But that's only a shell. And what you actually have is just pure demonic evil. Here is a character who feels no love. 
So when you do something, as Bram Stoker's Dracula did, where he's saying, I have crossed oceans of time to find you, it's, it's a horrifying betrayal of everything Dracula should stand for. So, oh, Dracula's I like... You know, one, one Dracula who is fantastic, although it's a while since I've seen the film, so it may bring in that lost love angle, I'm not 100%. But one Dracula who I was unexpectedly impressed by was William Marshall in Blackula. <laughs> Which, contrary to the black exploitation title, it's a performance of enormous dignity and gravitas. And, you know, William Marshall was a distinguished Shakespearean thespian, and, um, you know, he, he brings that weight and that gravity to, um, to um, this, this character, who isn't actually Dracula, but um, was as we discover in the film's prologue, turned into a vampire by Dracula, who um, adds um, racism to his list of sins by uh, saying, <laughs> you will forever be known as Blackula. So, uh, <laughs> I, wonder how, I wonder what Jordan Peele's Blackula would be. Um, very different. Right, let's, let's uh, get him on it. Let's get him yeah, on it, sure. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> no, I think, I think Christopher Lee is the proper Dracula, um, although I do love Lugosi as well. I, yeah, I, I think most people when they envisage Dracula, Lugosi's probably the one that comes to mind for them, isn't it? But yeah, Christopher Lee's just yes, he is sensational, isn't he? So, um, let's move then, James, to your penultimate disc. Uh, no, my, right. my voice sort of failed me as I said that. So, penultimate disc. Uh, well, it's been a very long episode, hasn't it? Hey, do, do you know, yeah, I've, I've just glanced at the recording. I can't believe we've been going for this long. So, <laughs> um, Let's go for a film from your favourite horror director then, please. Right, again, I was tempted to go for someone else, and that someone else would have been Terence Fisher. Mm-hmm. Obviously, yeah. Who <laughs> already has two films on the list, Frankenstein of a Monster from Hell and Dracula, so, you know, sod him, he's, he's had his problems. <laughs> Um, He's had his I'm time going... in the sun. <laughs> well, no, the great temptation with picking Terence Fisher is he's probably responsible for more films that I love than any other horror director. But there is a horror director who is responsible for four films, all of which I think are perfect, and that's James Whale, the great director of Frankenstein, The Old Dark House, Bride of Frankenstein, and the film I've chosen this time, because it's the only film I've never banged on about on another podcast which is the invisible man it's it's again i the it's eluded me for many, i actually do have i've just realized the universal oh, yeah. box set but i i've just not got around to uh, sticking this one on but i do know it's claude rains is in the yes in the title yeah. role isn't it yeah i, I mean Cla- claude rains is casting in the invisible man is to some extent emblematic of what made James Well so wonderful. In that, it's the film that created Claude Rains as film star, and he's, of course, one of the most brilliant character actors that Hollywood ever produced. Um, with films like Notorious and Deception and The Adventures of Robin Hood and Casablanca, and, you know, the list goes on and on and on and on. And, of course, he became, you know, a fairly respectable version of The Phantom of the Opera in a slightly indifferent film and um, also did wonderful horror adjacent films like Crime Without Passion which I think might have been his second film after The Invisible Man but um, 
Yeah, James Whale. Such was his um, vision. And also his authority at Universal at the time. He was able to get Claude Rains as the star of this film. Even though Claude Rains was in no way a film star. It's quite amazing, given Universal had wanted Boris Karloff. Another unknown actor who James Well had turned into a star. But, um, yeah, Reigns was, you know, a fairly respected theatre actor. But the fact that he then became the star of this film, this very expensive film, is, um, you know, entirely testament to James Well's creative vision. Um, he, he saw rather heard in Claude Rains the perfect incarnation of his character and it's that personal investment and commitment and ability to you know deliver on that glimpsed promise that I think distinguishes the films of James Whale every single element of a James Whale film you, you, you feel it carries an unmistakable personal authenticity now that's extraordinarily rare, and um, it means that even if there are elements in the James Whale film that you don't quite get on with, mm. um, I know, for example, some people think the comedic elements start to get out of control, particularly in these later films, like The Invisible Man and Bride of Frankenstein. Um, but even if you disagree with those elements, they're still unmistakably imbued with James Whale's personal signature. You know, they're very much the man expressing himself through the filmic medium, through the actors, through the sets, through the lighting, through the camera movements, through the script. And I have to tell you, The Invisible Man is one of the funniest scripts any horror film has ever had. Um, and a distinguished writer behind it, R.C. Sheriff, who had written the play Journey's End and also done for Wales some uncredited work writing The Old Dark House. Um... Yeah, it's a glorious, glorious film. It's still so technically dazzling. 90 years after it came out, there are still moments where, if you don't know how they did it, you cannot, for a moment, begin to guess. Um, that, that's it, what it does... I think I, I, I'm yeah, after yeah. with this sort oh, of yeah, thing. Is yeah. Just no, the, it's, the, it's... almost the magic of it, you know? No, absolute magic. I mean, it came out the same year as King Kong, but, but mm. other great bastion of 1930s special effects wizardry but um with, with king kong i think it's fairly well known now that quite a lot of the time you are looking at a stop motion figure and it's beautiful to behold but the invisible man it, it does a lot of what king kong does and a lot of what later brilliant special effects films such as jurassic park do but it does it so seamlessly which is to keep on changing the trick Mm. from shot to shot so in one shot it will be wires in another shot it will be some fantastic in-camera photographic effect in another shot it will be purely in an actor's reaction in another shot it will be some technical effect like um, you know, there's a moment where the invisible man sits down and you see the seat cushion go down so, so clearly they've rigged it in some way where they could do it practically on set but it, it, it provides such a sort of smorgasbord of sorcery, all these different mm. magic tricks, but it never becomes predictable, it never becomes boring. And um, like the wonderful H.G. Wells novel it's based on, it's um, packed with fascinating ideas, which 
complement this so beautifully. So so it never just becomes a hollow special effects showcase. You have um, all of H.G. Wells's brilliant ideas. So, um, you have the Invisible Man talking in a very mundane, very practical way about what it's like to be invisible, saying, I, I, I cannot go outside for a while after I've had a meal because the food is not properly digested and you'll be able to see it through me. <laughs> and um, it's, it's very difficult, you know, to walk upstairs at first because we're so accustomed to watching our feet. Um, <laughs> dirt beneath my fingernails may give me away, so I must keep scrupulously clean at all times. Because, of course, he has to go about naked. Um, <laughs> uh, so you have um, you have the special effects, but the, the, the imaginative scope of the ideas set forth in the script and, and the charisma of Claude Rains and that irreplaceable voice, which no actor's ever had in history and no actor will ever have again and the fact that the film is so riotously funny and so dark in its funniness um, it's such a gem it's such a gem a wonderful film have you seen the um, the 2020 version uh, of no I haven't there? yet actually I haven't it sounds like a wildly different film but that is also an incredible Incredible piece of work. It's more sort of. Uh, well, I, g- I gather it's much more about abuse, isn't it? It it, it is, which can make it like you know a fairly yeah, tricky watch to yeah. start with. But it, it, again, as you were saying about having you know so many ideas with the original from H. G. Wells, mm. the the recent version. It's again, it's full of ideas. Yes, um, yeah. It's it, and it is. Yeah, it's masterfully done. So. Again, well, James, you, you've expertly yeah. sold me on uh, on. The oh, good, end. good. <laughs> <laughs> it's all I'm here for. Um, yeah, I, 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 I did see Hollow Man, the um, Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon. Thing. Yeah, I've not. I've yeah, seen another one I've not seen. Actually. Well, well, I mean, that's very much about abusiveness and someone taking advantage of being invisible in order to. Uh, Commit abuses. Um, mm. None of that in the original. He he just murders people. <laughs> so much more palatable. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's just it's just good old uh, friendly murder. That's fine. There's, no, there's there's no sexy business. He is having to be naked at all times, but he's not you know he's not sexually harassing or you know doing doing worse to anyone. Um, actually, I think the Invisible Man holds the record for the most murders committed by any Universal monster. Um, really? Okay. He wow, wrecks a train. No, he wrecks a train at one point, and <laughs> I think we can be reasonably secure in the idea that no one on that train lived. So, um, <laughs> yes, there we have it, the Invisible Man. Excellent stuff. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I, I think actually of all the films we've spoken about, that's probably the one I'm looking forward to catching up with the most. That sounds great. I can't. I just it's it's another one of those. I'm like, I can't believe that I'm calling myself a horror fan and doing a horror podcast, and I've not seen so many like essential works. Almost. But Joe, the point here is, you feel shame, and you're going to do something about it. I mean, I mean, we all, we all have gaps. That's that's the thing. I mean, hundred um, percent. Most of my gaps just happen to fall at the other end of the twentieth century. <laughs> that's very true. So so my my enormous gap at the moment still is I've never seen Scream. I've somewhere, no, I've no, well, yeah, somewhere, uh, Mike no. Munzer has just sat up straight and gone. Something <laughs> <in> this universe. 
I think it's that thing for me where I'm I'm aware that certain films are never going to be hard to track down, so I've just not gone out of my way to see them yet. It's the same with Saw. I've not seen Saw, but it's like it's yeah. it's not going to be hard to find. I'd, I'd no, much rather scope out bit. some you know near forgotten poverty row horror film from 1943 starring George Zucco <laughs> than to uh, you know go go through the obvious things. But you know it, it was similar for me for years with an American Werewolf in London, which I have seen. No, but I, I I just put it off, thinking I'm sure it's good, but you know I'll I'll get round to it. It's fine. There's time yet. So there's always that's, time. That's there's always there's time. Always and time. and it's it's so lovely to have so much to look forward to. It's a brilliant. Thing. Absolutely, and and as I say, this is partly you know part of the show is, is as I'm realising is so I have stuff to then you know I'm essentially outsourcing. The, uh, the looking for the good stuff, you know. Outsourcing your spookery. <laughs> Outsourcing my spookery. That's the subtitle of the show from now on. There we are. Uh, James Swanson, we come to your final disc. Which oh, is a shame. God. It's been such a fun conversation. It? It's been great. A fun, extremely long conversation. <laughs> uh, I have enjoyed it. I have enjoyed it. But I didn't eat my Excellent. tea before this podcast, so... <laughs> You didn't. No, no, no. I shall. I shall be hungry as a hunter. But oh, um, you, you must be starving, James. Oh, no, no, I'm fine. You I'm should fine. have said we could have. We could have like paused. We could have stopped for a bit. Oh, no, it's an so it's awful, it's yeah. it's an actor thing. I I can't I can't do anything vocally. But, you know, if if I eat beforehand, it's very weird. Um, yeah, but um, yeah. Well, I'm sorry the final to have delayed film. you for so long. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. It's been a very pleasurable delay. I'm I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, your final disc then. What's your favourite horror film from the last five years? This is a very naughty suggestion. <laughs> but it's my shelf and... <laughs> and quite frankly, yeah, I'm allowed. Do what you um, want with it. And I'm picking it because if I don't pick it now, it will be more than five years old because it's the last... You know, it is exactly five years old. Uh, this film is Frankenstein's Creature. Ah. Starring me! (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I feel I have to bang the drum for it quite, quite, you know, quite, quite sort of doggedly at the moment because it's just become much more widely available. You know, it's now streaming on Amazon Prime and Apple TV and, um, oh, it's either pronounced Tubi or Tubi. It's a US thing, so I don't need to know how it's pronounced. But, um, yes, I have to. Languishing, languishing in a somewhat obscurity for a few years. It's um, yeah, it is now much easier to uh, get before human eyeballs. T- tell me about making Frankenstein's creature, then, James, because it's uh, it's an incredible feat. I'm I'm a big fan of single shot um, films, video, music videos come to mind as well for that sort of thing. But tell me mm. about making Frankenstein's creature, then. Well, I mean, Frankenstein's Creature is essentially how I've wound up in the current position of doing so many horror films. Um, it's it's one of the things that's persistently kept me going as an actor. I, I first wrote it as soon as I got out of university in 2012. Um, thinking maybe the way I'll guarantee my employment as an actor is by creating my own work and 
you know, who who else when you're in your early 20s is going to hand you the opportunity to play a character like Frankenstein's creature except yourself? So mm. um, I wrote it, and then it didn't really do anything until 2015 when I finally performed it theatrically. And then it went to bed again for three years, and it was Sam Ashurst who approached me with the idea of doing it as a film. Now, he'd come to this by talking to Dan Martin, and I'd come to Dan Martin by sending him the production photos from the stage version of Frankenstein's Creature. Um, I'd previously collaborated with Dan without ever meeting him when he'd done some special effects makeup bits and pieces for a play I was in called The Ghost Train Doesn't Stop Here Anymore. Now, the reason I was in The Ghost Train Doesn't Stop Here Anymore was because its director and co-writer Sean Hogan and one of its other co-writers, Kim Newman, were sat on the front row of Frankenstein's Creature on the first night. So you see how it keeps looping round. I I do Mm. owe this an awful lot, and in the funny way that a career develops bit by bit, um, I honestly don't know where I would be had it never happened in any of its iterations. Um... So yeah, doing it as the film was really the icing on the cake and um, I really was very strongly opposed to the idea of doing it in one take. Um, It was Sam who fought for that. And I think it certainly made sense on an expedient level in that if you have limited time, money, resources, if you can get it out in one take provided you can justify it artistically, which Sam did by treating this as though it was a film being made when the novel came out, if, if film existed at that point. Um, so, we, so, so we shot in the bicentenary year of the novel, 2018. The novel came out in 1818. And Sam's overriding concept was, what if films existed in 1818 where they'd look rather like the early trick films of George Méliès and all of that kind of thing so the idea of a sustained single shot where you can sort of see everything in the frame but nuanced with um, dissolves and a little bit of in-camera, well actually digital but what could have been in-camera magic somewhat in the way of the Invisible Man Um, just, just, just to give things a lift but but also doing that thing I was talking about with regards to Christopher Lee's Ghost Stories for Christmas. I, I beg your pardon. Ghost Stories for Christmas with Christopher Lee. Where, um, <laughs> you know, if you have the words and if you have the acting, you, you I very much hope, don't need that much more. Um, of course, the terror for me doing it in one take is, with it being a film, if I did cock it up, I'd be stuck with it and... There are very few performances of mine which I enjoy watching after the fact. Um, I'm, I'm intensely self-critical, and, you know, that's, that's fairly common amongst actors. Um, mm. It's fairly common amongst people listening to or watching themselves. But um, I, I amazingly seem to get through it on the day without stumbling. There, there, There is at least one discreet moment in the film where I forget my lines. I always know where it's coming, and I can see the panic in my eyes. But I was in such a state of heightened adrenaline that I just made up dialogue on the spot, and it all fits. 
So so no one but me knows where that moment is. But it mm. but it came I think over an hour in, so God, you can only imagine how scared I was. Um <laughs> Yeah yeah, as I say, I d I don't enjoy watching myself most of the time. I, I can watch that and I think, yes, this this is what I wanted Frankenstein's creature to be. This is what you know, I feel Mary Shelley was basically getting at in the novel. This is my mental idea of the character um, and I I think it's a film that does exactly what it sets out to do which um, you know isn't isn't all that common a thing um, I, mean, I mean it's obviously always going to be a fairly marmite film because it's so specific and it's so particular in what it does and I, I, I think unless you know the plot and the instance of Mary Shelley's novel reasonably well I, I, I think you are going to struggle to follow it although in in my defence the, the way it plays out it's meant to be fractured as is the creature himself so it follows a fractured timeline and his recollection of events is not necessarily straightforward and um, yeah it is it is a niche film but um you know, it's um, <laughs> as, as Sam said um, when when we were, you know, trying to promote it at the time. It's a film that's exactly his taste in films. Um, it, it does, it does, it does. I think do exactly what it was meant to do. And um, for me as an actor, it's very vindicating, given the nature of most of my work in horror, to actually be able to speak. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Although, I, you know, I have seen other bits and pieces that you've done, James, where you've had lines. So I think um, Werewolf Castle was one that I checked out a little while ago. And oh, yes. Haunting my, in the Tower of London. My three or four lines. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a particularly naughty performance in the Tower of London. That's um... Yeah, it is. <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> it's, uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, go and seek it out if you want to know what we're talking about. Jesus Christ! Yes, it was amazing. That. Oh yeah. yeah, oh you're getting at that. Yeah, sorry, I was I was just thinking about the acting. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. <laughs> there are certain things I might have done differently, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> but, um, um, one thing yeah. that did surprise me about Frankenstein's creature when I was oh, watching right. it is that I wasn't expecting a jump scare. But there is a oh, moment yes, in yes, it, James, yes. where you stand mm, still and you mm. face the camera with this really enigmatic smile on your face, and then all of a sudden you just charge at the camera. It really caught me off guard. <laughs> well, I, I, I was not ready uh, for it. I have to tell you, it's horrible to do. Because because oh, when yeah. you've got... I think, I think you've still got nearly an hour left after I've done that scare. You don't want to bugger up your vocal cords. By making a sudden noise, you don't want to. You don't want your throat to pack in. Um, it, it was always very scary doing it in the theatrical version because there it was a live audience as well, and they brought the house lights up slightly. So mm. I was actually staring at real people, whereas um, whereas doing it on the day I was just staring down the camera. But um, yeah, that is odd, isn't it? For for a man who hates jump scares, I'm. Continually threading them into things, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think I think the danger of something like Frankenstein's creature is it could. I mean, I mean, Sam always talked about it as a trance film, 
But um, the thing you don't want with a trance is for it to actually put people to sleep. You you want a trance to sort of <laughs> wake them up in a way. You want them to come to a deeper understanding rather than drift off into slumberland. So, uh, yeah, I think I think to have a loud man charging towards you is probably as good a way of securing that as any. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. All right, Frankenstein's creature then rounds out your spooky shelf, James. Um, Thank you. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll run down the, the list very, very quickly just to refresh our memories of exactly yes. where this journey has taken us. So the start of your spooky shelf, it begins like this. Uh, you have Phantom of the Opera from 1925, Threads, uh, House of Mortal Sin, The Body Snatcher, Ghost, with, with, I can't remember which title we decided on for this. Ghost stories for Christmas with Christopher <laughs> Lee or Christopher I, Lee's I, ghost. <laughs> the the first one, the first one. <laughs> uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum, The Others, uh, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, Cube, Late Mungo, Dracula, The Invisible Man, and finally Frankenstein's Creature. Are you happy, James, with your spooky shelf? I'm very happy with it. Yes, excellent stuff. It's I, been, won't, um, I won't. I won't necessarily be rewatching Threads anytime soon. No, but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of the others I shall return to. <laughs> it, it's been a real, real pleasure to to get a chance to speak to speak with you tonight, James. But um, what's what's next? What are you working on currently? Can you tell us about? Uh, oh, I'm I'm very much bound up in us? non-disclosure agreements with a lot of things. <laughs> now there's 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 one film I'm doing pickup shots on in May, and I started that film in April of last year. So I mean, it's a it's an unprecedented situation where I'll have been filming something for over a year. Um, <laughs> not not all the time, but. Um, I'm I'm not allowed to talk about that yet. I did a thing in Italy I'm not allowed to talk about last year. Um, I did a short film earlier this year called The Dead of Winter, which is on IMDb, so I think I'm allowed to talk about that. <laughs> and I've I've I just I just last week did a folk horror film in Shropshire, where I have a lot of dialogue, which was very exciting, and um, ah. I think potentially could be one of the best things I've ever been involved in. Um, I say potentially simply out of the terrible egotistical actor's complaint of <laughs> thinking you know, I, I know the film will be good. I might not be able to stand watching myself in it for whatever reason. But um, I, I, I'm quite excited for that though. Again, I, d I, d I don't think I can go on record with even the title at this point. Um, yeah, I'm yeah, bits and pieces flying around. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of secret projects you can't yet disclose, but we yes, shall keep an eye on yes. your socials to, for, for updates. Thank you, sort of thing. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing stuff. James Swanson, thank you so much for coming and putting up your very own spooky shelf. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, there you go. That was James Swanton on the Spooky Shelf podcast. Plenty of homework, certainly for me, hopefully for you, and we can all discover some lovely hidden gems. That is ultimately, I suppose, the point of this podcast for myself. Remember to subscribe to the Spooky Shelf wherever you get your pods. You can find me at Spooky Shelf Podcast on Instagram. Um, get in touch. Send me a message. Say hello. Let me know your favourite film. I don't know. Something. 
uh, thanks very much again to Cosme Nitchin for creating the incredible photography and artwork for this podcast and to Raul Coley and Mike Flanagan I'm sick of saying it lads to be honest with you just return my calls something you know cast me in Midnight Mass 2 Mass Harder I'll be back next week with another big old spooky shelf. Have a lovely week and see you next time. Give me back my son.